Hello and welcome to the Sonic Cinema Podcast. My name is Brian Scuttle and thank you for joining me at www.sonic-cinema.com. Today I'm pleased to be joined once again by a uh, friend and filmmaker who's made some really wonderful short films over the years, uh, Undatement Center, Imposter being among them. Uh, this, this, uh, and uh, his name is Chris Esper. We've discussed a lot of different filmmakers over the years on the podcast from Martin Scorsese and Andre Tarkovsky to Francois Truffaut. Uh, today we're going to be uh, doing a, uh, an individual film, but it's going to turn into a larger discussion on uh, the, the career and, uh, of Michael Cimino and uh, the aftermath of his 1980s film, 80 film Heaven's Gate, uh, what it meant for Hollywood, what it meant for him personally, and how we feel about personally. So please welcome it, uh, to the podcast, uh, Chris Esper. Today on the podcast, I'm joined by writer-director Chris Esper. He's a bit of a regular on the uh, podcast now. Uh, we've discussed not only his work, but we've talked about Martin Scorsese, Andre Tarkovsky, and Francois Truffaut. And uh, today we're joining up to discuss a uh, one film in particular. It's a film that's uh, pretty... It's pretty near and dear to uh, Chris's heart, and it's one that I just watched for the first time in uh, Gang Ray for this podcast. It's uh, Michael Cimino's uh, 1980 epic, Heaven's Gate, which is infamous for a lot of reasons and uh, has definitely a mixed reputation for a lot of reasons, some of which have nothing to do with the... Uh, quality of the film itself and uh i think this is going to be a really interesting um discussion and i definitely had some uh pretty strong feelings about the film myself uh chris thank you very much for joining me today uh thank you for inviting me brian it's always a pleasure to talk with you about films so uh, no this is great i'm i'm looking forward to this one okay so um i so how did you first get in touch, get in contact with uh, watching Michael Cimino's Heaven's Gate? Um, I got in touch with it uh, kind of randomly, actually. I had heard about the film, well, the film's title in passing. didn't know anything about it for years. And that I recall seeing a, a filmmaker's friend, a, a friend of mine who's a filmmaker. I saw his post on Facebook. That's uh, something along the lines of, oh, we just watched a documentary about the making of Michael Cimino's Heaven's Gate. And, you know, he was talking about how ego can ruin a studio, things like that. So I was curious. You know, I love that period of cinema, the 70s into the 80s. And so I found a documentary on YouTube. It's called uh, Final Cut, the Making of Making of Heaven's Gate, uh, which is based on a book by Stephen Bach. And Stephen Bach was the head of United Artists at the time of the film's uh, release and the making of the film. So I watched the documentary and I was engrossed by it. I found it to be very fascinating um, and uh, quickly wanted to sort out the film itself after having seen the uh, documentary and uh, found that like yourself, I had very strong feelings about it. Um, I was kind of mixed. I really liked it. Uh, particularly, 
Uh, technical level, it's beautifully made, beautifully made movie, uh, movie. the cinematography, the actors are, are great. Uh, but I found the pacing to be very slow at times. Uh, mm-hmm. but, but, but nonetheless, I, I, I like the movie. I, I still do. And, you know, I think, I think it's a great flawed masterpiece. That's kind of how I, um, it's kind of my take on it. Mm-hmm. But, uh, I had since done more research about Michael Cimino, about his work, and to me, I mean, he, he's a filmmaker that I have since drawn inspiration from in, in different ways. I find it to be a very fascinating guy, a very fascinating character. And I find his films to be fascinating. They all have, they all have, all his films have sort of a central theme or look that when you look at them, you think that's a Michael Schmidt film. Mm-hmm. And it's like, it's, it's, it's undeniable. But, um, so I, I still think he's a great artist, but, uh, but I love the film for that reason, but also, for the reason that it, it inca- it's a time capsule in that period of the transition from the 1970s to the 1980s in cinema, but ultimately in Hollywood, in the idea that the American auteur was going out and Heaven's Gate sort of just closed the door mm. uh, w- 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 with its release. And the misconception seems to be that Heaven's Gate was the film that killed the system. It didn't necessarily kill the system. The system was already on its way out. The, yeah. the, the auteur, the, the, the idea of new Hollywood, the auteur, the American auteur, if you will, with, with the likes of George Lucas, uh, Martin Scorsese, Steven Spielberg, Peter Bogdanovich, etc. cetera. Uh, but Heaven's Gate, that, mo- that moment in Hollywood is what just slammed the door shut. And mm-hmm. so I, I find the film fascinating in that sense as well. So I think that's kind of how I, came to like the film as much as I do. Yeah, and I I think that's one of the things that it is important to put that context in. Um, I, uh, you know, I've been listening to the A's All Over podcast, and they long discussed, uh, long since discussed Heaven's Gate. And uh, Mm -hmm. it's, it's interesting when, and it is true that, like, Heaven's Gate very much slammed the door shut as far as studios giving directors unfettered final cut. I mean, we've already mm-hmm. we've we've already talked about um Martin Scorsese's Last Temptation of Christ on here. That's a movie that like sure. he, he originally for and it's for very different reasons that he was originally going to set up and make in 1983, but then it took uh Five more years after that, again for other right. reasons, uh, not necessarily the uh, death of the American auteur uh, cinema mm-hmm. to get made, and so you have you have filmmakers like even somebody like Scorsese, who also even though he had Raging Bull come out the same year as Heaven's Gate, he also yep. struggled to make movies like. Um, King of Comedy, and then After Hours. Sure, and it's yeah. one of those things where the the blockbuster, by this point you have Jaws, you have Star Wars, you have Superman, you have the, the, the start of the rise of the blockbuster in movies, and studios, studios' uh, priorities got shifted from artistic expression to just how much money can we get? How much money can yes. we make? And that's yep. one of the things that's really uh, fascinating about it. So it, it's absolutely true that even though Heaven's Gate um, 
it basically ruined the studio. I mean, United Artists, after the financial disaster of Heaven's Gate, never really got on its feet again as an independent studio. Um, yeah. And that's, that's a real shame. But yeah. the fact of the matter is, it's like, I, I think to a certain extent, Heaven's Gate... Heaven, Heaven's Gate is sort of the flashpoint of the the death of the auteur theory and uh, the auteur cinema in Hollywood. I mean, okay, death is a bit of a strong word because, I mean, you still have filmmakers with a very strong voice uh, making movies at this point. But at the same time, just the idea of, oh, you're so-and-so, you get to do whatever you want. Right. And, I mean, the one of the things I remember about Chimino is that he was coming off of the deer hunter right when he made heaven's gate so i mean he was he was he just won two or three oscars for that film and so yep. i mean he he was he he basically could kind of do whatever he wanted and exactly so, uh it's it's fascinating to see that if somebody like him could go from his highest uh mark to arguably his lowest, even if quality wise mm-hmm. that uh it's not quite the low point for Chimino. Right, exactly. And it's interesting that you mentioned that because um the the thing that many who look back on his career and also uh, well also the folks at a United Artist at the time of the making of Heaven's Gate if you look back on his career prior to Heaven's Gate and prior to Deer Hunter, he came, his background was in commercial directing. He was a commercial director, mm-hmm. uh, and he had done commercials for uh, United Airlines and and, and uh, Pepsi, um, you know things like that. And if uh, actually, if you go on YouTube, there is you could find his commercial for United Airlines. It's like a bonafide uh, it's like a bonafide uh, Hollywood musical. It's beautiful, it, you know, and it's just like. You look at that, and you can see why he became a filmmaker. And his background is in architecture and painting. That's what he studied in college. And so, you know, so he was always about the visual and the extravagant. And you know, nothing was easy with him, as someone said. Uh, but uh, when it came to the Deer Hunter, even that film went a little over budget and a little over schedule. But there were legitimate reasons. You know, for example, John Cazale. Um, was dying of bone cancer at the time, so there was that worry, and then there were other, and then plus shooting in, um, I don't know if they actually shot in Vietnam for the Vietnam scenes, but I know those scenes were incredibly difficult to shoot. Yeah. So, so that film did have a history as well, but it wasn't quite the same. And you know, he argued with Universal Studios over the length of the film because uh, he he, you know, the ultimately the Deer Hunter is a three hour film, but the studio just wanted two hours, but in the end, he won the right to final cut. Mm-hmm. And so so that warning alone didn't really go into United Artists' head. They just saw that he won an Academy Award and they wanted to work with this guy. Yeah. And so they 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 let him have complete creative control. And you know, it in that sense, you know, they thought he was gonna deliver a masterpiece. And so there is that sort of, um, oh, I guess misconception that uh, uh, I suppose that uh, give the director the freedom and they'll deliver uh, anything. But that's been a, but but that but that's a cautionary tale. It, it yeah. ends up being uh, in a lot of ways, and that's 
sort of why we why Hollywood is the way it is now. So there's a lot of events leading up to that, you know, in, in that, uh, yes, you know, yes, you know, he was an egomaniac and yes, he did abuse his, um, abuse his right to creative control. So, uh, but on the other hand, you know, I think the studio also put too much trust into him. So I mm-hmm. think, I think, I think both parties are certainly at fault for oh, what yeah. happened because, yeah. you know, and, you know, and then he will jump on a bandwagon and say that, oh, you know, he was nuts. And, and then the other bandwagon is that the studio should have brained him in or whatever. But it's like, you know, both parties were ultimately involved. So mm-hmm. one is really to blame. It's, it's both parties, you know. Yeah. Now, when you when you eventually saw uh, Heaven's Gate, have you seen multiple versions of it? Or have you just seen... Because the only one I've seen is the three and a half hour cut that Criterion released yep. a few years ago. Yep. Yep. Okay, so that's the only um, one you've seen, or I've seen that one. I did see a while back on Hulu when they had other Criterion films. They had a two and a half. They had a two and a half hour version of Heaven's Gate. Okay. That was ultimate. That was ultimately released. Uh, I think about six months after its initial yeah. uh, premiere when it, when it was recut. Yeah. I had tried. I had attempted to watch it, but I j- just the opening minutes were so disjointed. You know, you could <laughs> see where the cuts. It, so I ultimately didn't finish watching it because I felt that it just didn't do the film justice. Mm-hmm. There's also there's also said to be a five and a half hour version, yeah, which, which is was- what. Yeah, yeah which, which is what Chimito his original version that he released. That was his original studio. Yeah. yeah. Yep, but the studio the studio obviously said cut it down. So that version I don't I don't believe was ever released. But if it's you know, I mean if it's out there somewhere, uh I'll absolutely watch it, of course. But I, um the and, and but the, the one I've seen is a three and a half hour. Yeah. yeah, and it's it's and it's interesting because of the fact that it's like my I I have it's my feelings on the film, just my my very base feelings on the film, is that I I think as far as the length goes, I think he's got a pretty good idea of how to get which scenes should go in and out, how to get yep. from in and out of scene to scene. But at the yep. same time, I think some of those scenes go on for punishingly long time. Mm-hmm. And the thing Absol- is, in, I, I muse about this in my review, uh, my written review, which will be on uh, Song Cinema shortly, uh, along with the uh, release of this podcast, in that I, they're like, we, we can go ahead and start it with the, uh, the graduation scene, where yeah. Chris Christopherson and John Hurt's characters are graduating from... Uh, Harvard, Harvard, yep. and it, and that's all. That's all really good. It has a really good flow from the very beginning shots of him racing to get to the uh, graduation, and then John Hurt's character delivering this very, uh, this this very um, pointed uh, commentary to the. Uh, commencement address that's just been given and all that is fantastic all of that is really well done it's really well paced really well structured and then chimino has a celebration after it 
that just goes on and on and on. And it's like, <laughs> yes. why does this, I mean, okay, fine. Show a little bit of the celebration, but then get out of that scene. That's right. And it's like, that's, yep. that's, that is kind of sort of, it sort of becomes the MO. That's sort of the way I fell every few scenes of heaven's gate where it's like, uh-huh. okay, you've got a really good thing going here. Keep just get from the next scene to the next scene. The, the, That's right. the, the way he goes from scene to scene, it's obvious he knows the story he wants to tell. It's obvious yes. he knows the story he wants to tell. He know, He's like right there as far as how he wants to tell it, but he just kind of can't get out of his own way as far as getting uh-huh. rid of some scenes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, <laughs> and I agree with you about the, about the graduation scene. I mean... I first saw that. I remember thinking, "Is this ever going to come back into the into the movie?" Ultimately, and, yeah. and like, real, and like, <laughs> and like, it sort of does uh, mm-hmm. thematically, uh, like thematically, but uh, not really in an obvious way. So you kind of think, "Why is this scene even in here?" Like, I mean, that, I mean, that scene alone is, I think, the whole graduation scene, beginning to end. I think it's about like at least twenty twenty five minutes. That's a long yeah, scene. It, it's you know, and, uh, half an hour. It's pushing yeah. an hour, and it's like, yeah, I, I mean, not even, not even like Stanley Kubrick or somebody could get to make a scene, could make a scene like that work for that long. Like, there's, no, there's not I really a filmmaker who could do that. Um, yeah, no, yeah, no, and uh, yeah, it. it uh, I, I mean, the scene is beautiful. You know, it's great. I and you know, and, and like later in the film, you could see where the themes of what's happening in the graduation sort of appears. Like, yeah. you know, they're talking about, like, they're talking about, um, oh, uh, you know, they're talking about, I'm trying to remember the speech. I don't remember it too, too well, but I remember, uh, I remember being about, uh, there's, a, there, there's like sort of themes of conformity in there yeah. and, and, and also um, really just about uh being your own person, I—that's I, sort of how I remember it uh, vaguely. Yeah, I mean, that's that's but, a that's that's a that's a pretty good way of yeah. I mean, that's that's a kind of that's kind of a good way of looking at yeah. Yeah, exactly. And so and so you can sort of see where that comes in, you know, because uh, obviously later in the film, Chris Christopherson's character Jim Averill, he learns to to um to fight for these people, and that theme of fighting for you believe in i suppose sort of comes into play in the graduation speech but i mean unless you really look unless you really look for it it's there because i remember first seeing the film i remember thinking i remember thinking why why is this here and and then when i saw the film the second time i listened closely to the graduation speech i was like oh okay you know then it sort of then it sort of connects but i agree that the the, the pacing of that alone that that could have been cut by at least a good 10 minutes or whatever yeah. but uh you know, yeah. I mean, especially considering the fact that, um, yeah, especially once you consider the fact that, like, like you said, I mean, it thematically speaking, that um, comes into play later. And uh, yeah, one of, the, one of the things that struck me, I mean, now that we're talking about a little bit more about the theme and the the movie, it's like one of the things that really struck me is that you know Jim Averill, somebody who came from you know this this Harvard education, this, you know, this, you know, basically like 
Harvard is sort of masters of the universe and stuff like that in terms of, you know, the the elite and he the people that he ends up um he the the people he's going to end up uh trying to protect and try to stand up with are people less fortunate than him in what they've been afforded yes. in life. And yep. one of the things that's really struck me is just especially in one of the early scenes where um the the uh, cattle barons in uh, Wyoming are sort of laying out their um, sort of laying out their plans for the uh, settlements and uh, the the fact and trying to get rid of the immigrants and the criminals and stuff like that. It's, yeah, it's it's something that really when when you think about some of the. Uh, dialogue and discussion of immigration of uh power pe- powerful people against quote unquote the others in society mm-hmm. it's like it's very modern it it really oh, is yeah. a film that plays to modern ideas that we're arguing and debating now yes uh, yeah absolutely i mean in that way you can say that it's a timeless film because that issue, that issue never really goes away. It's, it's been happening since the beginning and it's still going on now. Uh, even today as, as a country in the United States, we're still dealing with that. I mean, especially I, I would say even, I would say probably even more so now today than ever before. Oh yeah. And I mean, considering the fact that it's an, it's an issue that's always been present in American society. It's mm-hmm. an issue that's always, it's been present ever since the, founding of america and the fight absolutely america it's always been that that idea has always been and that struggle has always been there and so that that is one of the things that i really loved about the movie and what really was taken by as far as the movie and you start right you start to see that that basically becomes the idea behind the movie it's it's easier to and, and it's one of those things where it you can see where Chimino's building up. You can see the story that mm-hmm. Chimino's building up. It's like once you, once once Jim arrives in Wyoming, basically those next few scenes are setting into focus what the ultimate story that Chimino is trying to to right. impart. Oh yeah, absolutely, and and. Um... You know, talking about this, something that just came into my head as well. Um, one of the main characters in the film, Ella, that's played by Isabelle Huppert, um, is a yeah, she's a and she is a French woman that um, uh, I, I, I guess she uh, she she uh, I don't know if the she. She runs like the the um, the the uh, bordello that's in town, yeah. And so it's like, so you think of it that way. You have you have someone that Jim Averill is obviously very close to, obviously very much in love with. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and at the same time, she's a, a French woman, and the film doesn't uh, doesn't uh, and the film acknowledges this for sure. Like it doesn't. Uh, 
uh, take that take that away. So I find that interesting as well that she that he's in love with someone who, in theory, is one of these immigrants that said that that this county is trying to take out. Yeah. At the same time, as we saw in the graduation scene, he is his girlfriend is an attractive American blonde woman, mm-hmm. and so there's a. There's a great contrast there that I don't know if that was intentional on Chibito's part. I don't think it was because I know he fought hard for Isabeau Opera when the studio said it doesn't make sense to have a French actress uh, be the uh, woman of a Bardello in Wyoming in the 1940s, which that's very, which that's very true. You know, there was speculation that that uh, he was in a relationship with Isabeau Opera, you know, whatever the case might be. That somehow worked, I think, to the movie's advantage in its theme in some strange way, but it's head show otherwise. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and I mean, we, you know, it's like, and that that uh, that um, that romance between uh, Avril and uh, Ella, the Isabel Huppert character. It's like one of the things that I I took note of was like. It feels like those initial scenes between them are very um are are very stretched out and feels like yes. it's one of the it's another one of those examples of Chimino sort of he, he can't let go of uh he he's too he's too fixated on just dotting the I's and crossing the T's when yes. it's like, oh I can't you know, he, he's 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 like a writer who um go goes on and on and on and it it's yes. like a, it, it this is kind of a weird comparison but it's like it's a movie that I watched earlier this year and I absolutely love then and, and it it reminds me of Michael Douglas's writer in Wonder Boys where it's like he's oh, okay. this massive opus where it's like every little detail and stuff like that but. At a certain point, he sort of he lost track of the story, and it's like he lost yeah. track of why those things were important to him, and so it's like he just can't get he he needs to be able to uh, just step back and realize, oh, I didn't need this. And the thing yeah, is, exactly. Like, those orig- those initial scenes aren't unnecessary; they're not completely unnecessary, and that's one of sure. the things about the movie is that. I feel like there aren't really too many scenes that are unnecessary in the movie, but the way Chimino cuts the scenes, it's like, it feels like, oh, well, really? We're still going on and and going on. It makes the the scenes just not work in general. I agree. I agree. Yeah, yeah. The movie, in uh, a lot of times, sort of meanders for at least yeah. a good hour. Like, I think the plot, I think the plot of the film, where he's reading off the names on the death list um, for, from this county, that might come into play. I, I think around the two-hour mark, maybe a little yeah. bit more than that. But it yeah. takes a while. It's actually, it takes a while for the plot itself of the story to actually kick in. Everything prior to that mm-hmm. is a lot of setup. I mean. My favorite scene in the film is the roller skating scene. I love that scene. Is it necessary though? Mm, no, <laughs> it yeah. doesn't really. 
doesn't doesn't add anything to the movie. But I love, but I love the scene. I for some mm-hmm. reason I think I think it it looks gorgeous and it also captures the essence of that period of that time and also the essence of of the people within the land and how and and, and it's interesting how the the name of the rink is called Heaven's Gate and yeah. I and obviously it's very intentional. Mm-hmm. Uh, for I mean I saw I mean. I mean, if you're going to go deep about it, and this might be going, uh, this might be reading too deep into it, but I saw that as sort of like a paradise and or escape from the realities of what was going outside those four walls. And uh, so I could see why that scene was in there, if that was the in- intent of it, but uh, I think it could have been cut down considerably, but I love, but I love that scene. I, mean, I think yeah. it's great, but I mean, but it seems like that that makes the movie meander before the point of it comes in comes into play. Oh yeah, I mean, and one of the thing, and as far as the uh, roller skating scene in particular, I think it was in regards to that scene. It's like three extended scenes of like dancing and stuff like that. It feels excessive, and in the first, and having all three of those scenes in like the first ninety minutes of a three-and-a-half-hour movie, it just doesn't work at all. And yeah, no, it I mean, doesn't work at all. That individual scene is really good. Would I cut any... Would I cut it in general? No, I wouldn't cut... I wouldn't cut it completely. No. But at the same time, I... I also wouldn't necessarily... You know, I... It's it's one of those things where it's like, you know, you, you could probably get out of this scene a bit quicker. Yes. And, uh... I yeah, and I I had uh, forgotten. There are so many fantastic people in this. Um, John Hurt, Chris Christopherson, yep. uh, Jeff Bridges, and uh, mm-hmm. Christopher Walken, and yep. uh, Christopher Walken, um, Christopherson, and Isabel Huppert, uh form something of a love triangle. Um, yep. That uh, gets that gets starts to get going again it's one of those things where it's like there's a lot like you said there's a lot of setup but it takes yeah. a while for the story to really kick in and uh, sure. that that love triangle between avril ella and uh champion who's christopher walken's character uh it's another example of that and it's certainly not boring and you certainly understand why it's in there because of the fact that i mean that that's that's a very typical Hollywood yeah. film trope, the love triangle, uh, just another way of building tension and stuff like that. And especially yep. given the fact that uh, Avril and Champion, to a certain extent, are also on opposite sides of this. Yep. And um, so that's that's another way of building tension um, for all of the time that Chimino spends on it though i'm not sure that it's completely you know worth having in there so, mm, i agree yeah uh, but yeah you you mentioned isabel Huppert, and uh i you know honestly like she's you can tell that this is very early in her career you can sure tell, and she's she's grown into a wonderful actress i don't oh, know yeah. that i don't know that heaven's gate is a good example of her as an actress. I think mm-hmm. she's I, I think you can see how raw she is. I think you can see how uh how 
um, she's she's not as experienced as the filmmaker as the actors around her, and I think it. I agree. Shows. Oh yeah, absolutely. I, I think that that may have been her first um, motion picture. Yeah. Uh, with, with her speaking the English language I, before, yeah. <laughs> I think she did only only French films. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so. and, that, and that no doubt did not help. I mean, no, for, not at all. Yeah, I mean, it's in to a certain extent. Yeah, it's authentic for you know the type of character she's playing and the the role. But at the same time, it also it it also makes it hard to really accept her performance alongside of you know people yeah. like Christopherson and Christopher Walken who are just absolutely uh, just crushing it around her. Yeah. Absolutely. So, yeah. Uh, and and you talked about how beautiful the movie is, and it's like I I watched on the uh, I actually watched on the Stars app. They had they had uh, the movie on they had the movie on the Stars app. So that's how I watched, and it was the Criterion cut. It made me yeah. wonder whether, um, I I was I'll be honest, is like I was not as impressed with the cinematography as I was expecting to be. And that right. really blows me away because of the fact that it's Vilmo Sigmund, who's a, yeah. who's a, a brilliant cinematographer. And yes, he was. he's, he's yeah. one of the great ones, but uh, you know, it's, it's one of those things where it's like, yeah, there are some scenes in the movie that are absolutely beautiful. that are absolutely fantastic to watch, but at the same time, it's yeah. like, there are other movie scenes where it's like, I mean, is it really that good looking of a movie? It's like I'm not right, sure. yeah. So I'm kind of curious if it's if it was exactly the same color grading and color scheme that's on the Criterion. It makes me want to check out the Criterion sometime to see how I feel about it. See, right? See yeah, how I it looks in comparison. Yeah, I. Yeah, I have the Criterion. Um, it's the 4K restoration that that Shimito himself actually um, uh, supervised, yeah. um, and uh, it's funny because I I actually saw. I, I see. I'm trying to remember where I first saw the film because it wasn't on Criterion when I first saw. It. I first saw it. It may have been. I think it may have been on. Um, it may have been on Hulu or it may have been on Amazon. Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. It was on Amazon Prime, and I remember watching it on there. And the colors looked a little bit different. Like it had a it had more of a dirty brown. Yeah. Whereas the criterion yeah. the criterion it had a lot of good saturation, very vibrant colors, mm-hmm. everything stood out more. Uh so I have to wonder I have to wonder if maybe it was a uh um uh, an original version from an original D V D or original VHS release even. Yeah. Um for for all we know. But um but I certainly saw a difference in the Criterion version. It looked very much uh, a lot more cleaned up. Um, the yeah. thing for me, though, that, I, that I've always noticed, and reviewers at the time of its release also pointed this out, was some of the dialogue being uh, inaudible at times, uh, which even in the Criterion version, I kind of agree. There is a sort of... There are times where you can't really understand the dialogue because there's so much detail with sound mix with the... Uh, noises with a different Foley sound, such as like trains and atmosphere and things like that. Yeah, that sometimes that sometimes the dialogue is a little bit lost. I remember having to put 
the closed captioning on so I could so I could hear what was going on uh, or because uh, mm. there were some there were some lines I missed. Um, and I remember reading some reviews at the time it was released, uh, I think from even like Vincent Canby and from Roger Ebert. And I think all of them said the same thing. That's why the dialogue were virtually inaudible at times. I was like, oh, interesting. Yeah. yeah. And it's, it's one of those things where it's like, I know, uh, I remember a few years ago, and this is kind of off topic, but it's the same kind of thing we're talking about from a technical standpoint. But it's like, I remember when uh, Interstellar came out a few years ago, the Chris Nolan film. And yeah. the, the way that was mixed, and even Dunkirk is kind of the same way, where it's like you can't, the sound effects and the music supersede the dialogue. And yeah. it's it makes the dialogue very difficult to understand and very difficult to, you, you sometimes lose the story and the characters to a certain extent. When those cases, I didn't. That's, I don't remember if I noticed that too much with Heaven's Gate. I don't know if I got that, but it. Right. It's one of those things where it's like you wonder. I appreciate, you know, it's like I always appreciate filmmakers uh, trying out different ways to uh, tell stories from a technical standpoint. I mean, I I'm very much a Christopher Nolan fan, and Interstellar is actually sure. one of my favorite movies of his um yeah and uh but it's one of those things where it's like you at a certain point you kind of have to sort of accept that you know audiences need some uh they they need as much i i feel like you can challenge them a bit when it comes to dialogue being audible and stuff like that and exercising sound effects and music over dialogue but at the same time it's like you can't really you shouldn't really there's only a certain amount point a certain point that i think that's really it it gets to a point where you it has a negative impact on the film if it yeah i agree too far into that so yeah i agree i think i think it certainly has to be a balance um between what is artistic merit and then also what is um, uh, ultimately um, acceptable and also what uh, uh, the handle that you give to an audience because uh, even with uh, even with the film that is purely coming from artistic merit, there has to be a handle for an audience, be it, uh, uh, be it in the sound mix or, 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 or even in the themes of the film, what have you. Uh, this is something I was very conscious of. I mean, not to get up off topic uh, here, but uh, this is something I was very conscious of when I was making Imposter because it was a film that uh, was very different in its approach and themes and all that. And I had to think about, I had to think about how would an audience grasp onto this without me being too artsy and then also treading the line of being pretentious or at yeah. also at the same time trying to wind up even being heavy-handed with the theme because I wanted to be subtle about it, but, the, but at the same time, I also didn't want to spoon-feed the audience either. So it's like, well, how do you do that? And yeah. so I, I, think that, I, think that's a, I think that's a responsibility every filmmaker has, uh, the, whatever film they make, but particularly with something even like Heaven's Gate, which is obviously very dialogue-heavy, very theme-driven, um, and also 
you know, it's it's often categorized as an art film, and, and it's easy to see why. Uh, so I think in that way, it is a responsibility of the filmmaker to have to sort of go onto that balance as to what is going to be understandable for the audience, and also what uh, at what point are they not compromising their artistic vision. Yeah. Yeah, and, and that's one of the things that I do appreciate about Heaven's Gate and movies like it, even though I don't necessarily... I don't know that I would necessarily categorize the film as great. I think there are issues yeah. in the film that that sort of take it out of that realm, but it's like it's it's impossible to dismiss it because of the fact that you can see sure. the ambition yeah. behind it, because of the fact that you can see that there's a real voice there. I, I feel like yeah. there is a real voice there and that you can see and it 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 feels a very it feels very personal to me though this story. And yeah. So I'm not completely clear all of his, uh, all of his background. Maybe you can illuminate some of that, uh, for sure. us, but it does feel like this is a very personal story to him. Yeah. Um, I, I would agree with that. Certainly. Um, if you look at all of his films, uh, there is that sort of, um, there, the, all his films have a sense of Americana mm-hmm. to it. Obviously, the deer, obviously the deer hunter, very Americanic. Uh, but the other thing about his films too, they all have a, they all have a certain theme of individualism, nonconformity, and also the idea of, uh, uh, and also um, his films are also very operatic, and I mean that in the best of ways. Uh, in that uh, they feel very epic, they feel very big, uh, they feel. They have a large scope. Uh, even if you look at uh, his first film, uh, his first feature as a director uh, with Clint Eastwood and also Jet Bridges, Thunderbolt and Lightfoot, it's a caper comedy, but there, but all the shots have a sense of scope. It's in the desert, uh, much like Heaven's Gate. There's a lot of big sweeping shots like in Deer Hunter. The films that came after Heaven's Gate, You're the Dragon, uh, The Sicilian especially, Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, you know, those two in particular, they have a great sense of scope and scale. Uh, and, uh, and so I, I, I think, uh, I think that really, I think that, I think it is personal for him in that sense. There is a sense of Americana to Heaven's mm-hmm. Gate. There is a sense of, there is a sense of individualism. And actually, one of the films that he wanted to do but never got to make was an adaptation of the book, The Fountainhead, which, okay. uh, also, yeah, which also had a movie in the 1940s, 1949, I believe, with, uh, yeah. was it Gary, was it Gary Cooper? Yeah, I think it was I Gary Cooper. So. Yeah. yeah, and so, so he had written his own version of The Fountainhead, and if you know The Fountainhead, uh, which I recently had a chance to, I mentioned in the middle of reading, um, it is very much a book about individualism, not conformity, mm-hmm. so you could certainly, and and I think it's interesting uh, uh, in that um, in that um, you know you had a story with the Fountainhead about a guy who is an architect that that uh, wants to do his own ideas and is fighting for for his own ideas mm-hmm. and uh, ultimately leads to this lead character uh, uh, sort of spinning on his own wheels and that. You know, and, and it's coming back to bite him at the end. Uh, 
mm-hmm. and I can't I can't help but feel like that also happens to Tremino as a filmmaker. Yeah, in that he had he had grand ideas. He was perhaps ahead of his time, but at the same time, those ideas came back to bite him. And I can't help but feel like that that's also a personal story for him. So I read that, I read that book, and I think, uh, I think you know, I think it, you know, people argue that the Fountainhead is about uh, is sort of based on the life of the architect Frank Lloyd Wright. But I also think that uh, in a way, it's also about Tremino in, in that way. You know, I think he read it and saw a lot of himself in there. Mm-hmm. And if you watch. You watch Heaven's Gate. I certainly, you know, you certainly see that as well. So it's yeah. very fascinating when you, when you see the artist being reflected in their own work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and when when you were talking about Chimino and some of the films they made, other films they made, and stuff like that, I couldn't help but think of uh, Sergio Leone's and the way that Absolutely. he brought his his particular sensibilities to American idioms, especially the Western and. Uh, you know, and it's one of those things where it's like I I still need to see uh, Once Upon a Time in America. I I still haven't seen yeah. that. I need to see it. Uh, but I mean, I've seen Once Upon a Time in the West. I've seen the Man with No Name trilogy. I love the Man with No Name trilogy. And uh, it, yeah, it's one of those things where it's like it's you you can tell that there's real real insight and real vision not only into um. You know, he's got this big, broad idea of America and this big, broad idea of especially the American West and how yeah. America came to, you know, define itself in terms, especially in terms of Westerns. But at the same time, it's like you do have this very personal thing. And it's like, I have no doubt that um, Chimino sees himself as... Uh, Avril in this film. It's like it's, yes. it's obvious that there's a personal connection with Avril that he absolutely uh, yeah that he uh, and that's why he wants to tell the story. And um, it's it's one of those things where it's like it's that's why ultimately it's hard not to once you get going with Heaven's Gate, it's hard to stop watching. Even, absolutely, even when scenes go on for what seems like an eternity for, you know, yeah. and even, even if there are some things that seem to go nowhere and then they all of a sudden come up later and talking about the American girlfriend that he, you see at the uh, beginning in the yeah. celebration at the graduation. And then you don't mm-hmm. really see her again in, um, until the very end. So the very and end, it's right. It's one of those yeah. things where it's like, you you wonder and and that's one of those things that was one of those weird things that weird that scene at the end where it's like well i mean you you you've seen what happened sort of the ending of how avril and ella's relationship uh is doomed in that film and how it yep. ends but at the same time it's like what is I, I can't help but think of with that last scene, sort of like what is Chimino trying to say in that? Is that does that yeah. mean that Avril sort of realized his place and sort of took his place as sort of like one of the elites, somebody who can right. like said, conforming to uh the elite idea of America and what he's yeah what he should have been doing or is right. he trying to 
And what and is he saying that's a good thing or not? Right. Yeah. Yeah. That that for me that last scene for me as great as it was I I, I agree that uh, it's not really clear what he's trying to say and it makes the message of the film kind of muddled in that way. But nonetheless, there is sort of a you do sort of get a sense that uh, um, he's saying something. And you can look at it one. You can look at it one of two ways, as as you mentioned. Is he is the is Jim Averill conforming, or is he just simply, uh, uh, or is he, or does he simply really believe that this is where he belonged the whole time? Yeah. And it's really that's kind of hard, that's kind of hard as you as you want to know. But uh, but in, but at the same time, it also it also makes it it, it also gives it a great. Uh, opening to discussion, such as what we're doing right now, because mm-hmm. you because we could because we could talk about up and down all day, uh, and uh, you know, and, and I'm sure you know you watch the film again, you you could come out of it with a different interpretation altogether. Yeah, um, and that's I mean that's the beauty of film in general, but particularly about that film is uh, that you, know, you don't know what he's saying, but at the same time, it's interesting to debate what it is he's trying to say. Yeah. Yeah, and and the thing is, it's like ultimately, I mean, there's there's a reason. Ultimately, you can tell that there's a reason that Criterion decided it needed to add this film into its collection. Yeah, and it's and it's not part of it is obviously the reputation it holds as far as sure. what it represented financially speaking for everybody involved for creative freedom for everybody involved, what happened to the studio, what happened to the film. It's definitely, it definitely has um, lessons to be learned from that. But at the same time, there is a real, there is a real definitive uh, artistic voice. I think part of it, even if I'm not even sure, you know, it's one of those things where you wonder if, like you know, like we're saying, it's like we're not even sure whether Chimino necessarily knows what he's trying to say, um, right? With that ending and uh, what it means, and you know, maybe that was his whole point of having the celebration at the end of the movie, as opposed to at the beginning right. of the movie, as opposed to just you know a little bit, a quick cut of them celebrating and stuff like that, and then oh, we're off to the story, you know. Right, but yeah. at the same time, it's like you can tell that he's also somebody who did need to be reined into a little for a little bit. It's like who need a little bit more yes. structure. I mean, you could say that, and you know, we we started off the year talking about Andrei Tarkovsky, and he's even he's a good example of that because it's like there there are yes. films where I I adore all of his films. I can't live there. I there are none of them that you can live without. But yeah. at the same time, it's like I can also acknowledge that there are some times where he's a bit too full of himself. I mean, especially yeah. in some of the uh, lengthier scenes in The Sacrifice, especially when it mm-hmm. comes to, like, nostalgia and those even... Not even oh, I, yeah. I don't know if I would necessarily include Stalker, but, I mean, Solaris. I feel like there are times where it's like... Yeah. You... you he he's somebody who I love when he is uncompromised, but at the same time, it's I also see why that was a problem for people. 
And I completely yep, I understand why Tarkovsky is not everybody's cup of tea. There's also I, I sure. also completely understand why Heaven's Gaze uh somebody why it wouldn't be somebody's cup of tea, but at the same time I I think part of the problem with Heaven's Gate is that so much of the discussion of it has landed on well, is it Universal United Artists fault that the film failed because they didn't uh give Chimino the freedom they they should have to make the film or was it Chimino's fault that the studio failed and all this stuff? It's like this is sort of he said, she said part of the filmmaking yeah. process that is kind of frustrating. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, it's, and uh, you make a good point about uh, Tarzowski. I would also add in there um, Kubrick as well, but particularly with films like Barry Lyndon or 2001 A Space Odyssey. It's not yeah. everyone's cup of tea. Um but I think the difference between Tarzowski, Kubrick, and, and uh, Heaven's Gate is that, in my mind, you know, some may argue against this, but I feel like with Tarzowski and with Kubrick, there is, there, there is at least in my opinion, there's no pretenses there yeah. uh, with their films. Like, you, know, you, know, you, don't get a sense, you don't get a sense that they're reaching for something, but it's coming from a genuine, a genuine place. Some may argue against that, right? and that's, it's totally understandable to see why. Mm-hmm. With with Heaven's Gate, while I don't think it's fully, while I don't think that there's a ton of pretense there, you could tell that there is in a way. I mean, I've heard stories about Chimino shooting over a million feet of film on Heaven's Gate just so he can meet, just so he can meet the quota in which Coppola shot Apocalypse Now. Yeah. Yeah, because Apocalypse Apocalypse Now was another trouble production by United Artists, and mm-hmm. you know he had. You know, millions of you know, a couple million dollars over budget. Uh, um, you know, strenuous amount of time. Obviously, a very troubled film. Yeah. But 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 Coppola had a good reason for making that film, and there were no pretenses behind that. There wasn't. Um, like you watch that film, it's terrific, and it's a very admirable movie in a lot of ways. Uh, mm-hmm. What happens, Gay? You can't you can't really say the same thing. Yeah. It's uh, it's it's very hard to explain, but. Uh, but basically, basically, I think it comes down to intent is to what was the intent of the filmmaker? Is there a genuine place from the heart of the filmmaker being seen here? And I think when you watch movies by Trzaski, Kubrick to a certain extent, uh, and also um, uh, from Coppola with Apocalypse Now, there is a genuine intent there to make something that is um, trying to say something. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. No, and I and and you know you you do bring up a good point about that, and it's like I think one of the things about and yeah, it's like you you kind of I think one of the things that I certainly appreciate about Kubrick and Tarkovsky and Coppola to a certain extent is the fact, or at least in that era of Coppola, I mean you know you can certainly you know you can certainly dispute uh, later Coppola. You know, is he sure. had less and less freedom, and you know his vision for American zoetrope sort of went by the wayside. But the fact of the matter is, it's like I I think one of the things about those filmmakers is that they were intent on presenting their vision, regardless of whether you liked it or not. And it just sure. so happened that. 
for a lot of people and for the people making the movies, although Tarkovsky's a different story because of the fact that he yeah. was he was making film he was making films at a time where uh the Russian government was more had more uh say over um over content than American studios have ever really tried to let the American government do except for you know especially after the Hayes co- the the Hayes code of the uh 30s 40s and 50s and um after after that like you know government government interference in films and government dictating uh content in films i mean you could you could argue with military films that you know it's still very problematic as far as uh as as far as the relationship between uh government in terms of dictating uh the type of content of military film but the right. fact of the matter is it's like but my my point my ultimate point before I got off track there with Tarkovsky was that Kubrick and Tarkovsky they and Coppola at least in that time they made films that just happened to they they were clear about who they were it's like this yes. is the type of filmmaker that I am uh this is the type of film that I want to make and it just so happened that people connected with that. Um, yes. You know, and Chimino, I think, was still at that point, even after The Deer Hunter, you kind of feel like he was trying to, he was trying to get to that point himself, and he was, he was not quite, he was sort of like early Kubrick, where it's like, yes. it took Kubrick a few films to get to the place where, he did Lolita and Doctor Strange Love yep. in 2001, Barry Lyndon, and all of that stuff, where he was the uncompromising, I know what I want to do filmmaker. And I, th- yep. I feel like Chimino was still in that era. Yeah, yeah. Well, there's that. And also the fact that Chimino at the time, you know, that, you know, Heaven's Game was only his third film into his career. Yeah. So he was still, you know, he was still relatively young in his career. Whereas Tarasovsky, Coppola, and Kubrick, by the time they became what they did ultimately become, that took them a long time to do so. Uh, whereas I feel like Chimino, you know, I hate to say it, but I think in a way, I think the, his, his own ego, especially wearing the Oscar, I think I got into his, I think I got in his way yeah. of being, yeah. of being truly, of being truly another Kubrick because in a way he was uh, at the time, you know, because he was much like, much like Kubrick. He was a proud perfectionist, you know, took multiple takes of scenes, was very detail oriented on things uh, that uh, most would dismiss. So you can't argue that he didn't have artistic vision. He much, he most certainly did. Yeah. I think it was, I think it was an issue of ego running rapid mm-hmm. uh, in this case. Um, so I think I think how I think had he done maybe two or three small pictures before doing something to the scale of having a gate, he could have very well have been someone in the same likes as the filmmakers that we've that we've been discussing. Yeah. 
Yeah, and I, I didn't even think about the fact that Deer Hunter was his third film. And yeah, he was still relatively young. And, you know, it's, it's you know, I, I think I think it is one of those cases where I I think obviously the the his his ego about what he wanted to do with Heaven's Gate and uh his perfectionism got in the way of that but yeah. it's also interesting it is also interesting that again it comes back to this context of when Heaven's Gate came out and yeah. the fact of the matter is if Heaven's Gate had you wonder whether Heaven's Gate, if it had come out like six years earlier, you wonder yeah. if maybe he would have been given another chance. I mean, I don't know if it, I don't know if that necessarily would have been true, given the way uh, he went over budget, the considerable way he went over budget. Sure, but yep. at the same time, you wonder if uh, if if he had been like five years earlier whether he would have been given another chance or whether he would have just been a filmmaker that uh you you just never really heard from again sort and i mean yep. you know he did make other films after heaven's gate you already yes. mentioned them but um you know it it's it is wondering it is curious to think of whether uh because the the fact of the matter is the error he did make uh, Heaven's Gate in was that whole idea of unfettered access to directors, except for yeah. you know a few, kind of was going out the door, and yeah. so you know would he have gotten another chance? And again, and yeah, it, it does. I think you do kind of have to look at the uh, Oscars they made from uh, the Deer Hunt he got from the Deer Hunter. If if that's something that was kind of because we see it now where it's like actors get Oscars young in their careers and or filmmakers get act Oscars young, you know, early in their careers. And then they just they can't really they're always striving for that um, other chance or they just start to make progressively worse and worse decisions or yeah. problematic decisions that sort of stunts their right. as an artist. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, that's sort of where Shimito's career is, serves as a as a cautionary tale of sorts. And also, much like his films, it's very operatic, his career, yeah. in, that, in that, you know, he had this very large trajectory to being great to all of a sudden a very low trajectory of being a pariah. It's really, like... Really, really, like mm-hmm. probably unlike, probably unlike any other filmmaker in the history of cinema, yeah. honestly. <laughs> well, and it's it's weird because uh, you know a filmmaker that we haven't we haven't talked about, but who is kind of in the same in the same vein, but also happened at the same time was uh, Terrence Malick, where it's like and yeah. he had Badlands, he had Days of Heaven, and then he just he vanished. He, he didn't do anything yeah. for 20 years. And 20 years. Like, yeah. That's another career. That's just fascinating to consider. And, and now it, it was funny. It's like after the thin red line, he had, he did the new world. And then, you know, he gradually got into that type of career that most filmmakers do where it's like, 
you know, I'll do a film every couple of years and stuff like that. But yeah, does was that necessarily the best thing for him? Right. And, yeah. And, and okay, sorry. No, that's that's fine. Uh, well, I was also going to bring up uh, Orson Welles. You know, he's yeah. another uh, another filmmaker with a very very strange uh, trajectory, uh, much like Chimito and even Malick to a certain extent. You know, Wells came out the gate with Citizen Kane at, at the age of 24, 25 years old. Yeah. Uh, at a time when filmmakers, when directors were not of that age mm-hmm. and had a, had a quick trajectory of being, of being the, uh, of having, of having made the greatest American film of all time. Uh, so people said for many years that, he had trouble getting other projects made. And, you know, at the recent release of the other side of the wind, yeah. there's a new, there's a new re, uh, refound interest, a uh, renowned interest uh, in his work mm-hmm. uh, as a director, you know, from, from, from the unreleased uh, Othello. Uh, I can't remember if it was released. Uh, yeah. Othello, you know, that he tried to bring Doc Yodi, touch of evil, you know, so he did all these films, all of which had trouble being made simply because he couldn't get the money to make it and he just became yeah. a pariah of himself and mm-hmm. so you know it's like yeah. and it's one of those things where you where you praise a director to the skies and then all of a sudden there's just there's there's like there's there's this complete downfall and uh and it's like it's like and it's it's one of those things where you look at the careers and you think okay well where does that come from does that come from ego does that come from uh does that does that come from overpraising? Does that come from uh, lack of money? Does that come from uh, uh, of 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 an audience or a community or critics mm-hmm. wanting to see wanting to see said artist fail in a way? Because that certainly does happen. Yeah. So it, it's very it's very interesting when you when you look at when you study these careers and you think what went wrong, you know. Mm-hmm. Well, Wells is definitely an interesting figure. I mean, it is important to put into the whole context of Wells' career that he he might with Citizen Kane. He basically he ruffled some of the wrong feathers, you know, because yeah. it's very un it's a very thinly veiled uh, shot at William Randolph Hearst. And sure, yeah. Needless to say, Hearst took his wrath out on Orson Welles after making that film to where I I do think a lot of it was, well, I I think a lot of it was studios just being scared about taking, giving Welles that type of creative freedom again. So I think that might've been part of it. And with, you know, Magnificent Ambersons and then each subsequent film, he would continue to make great films. That's the thing. Yeah. And but like you said, it took longer and it was tougher and tougher for him to get those films made. And right. that's one of those things where watching watching a filmmaker like Wells, like Chimino, the way his their the way their careers follow, especially after early success, is fascinating. Now yeah. Wells I think he made the best of it as best he could. Yes. But I don't know if Chimino was really ever offered the same uh the same way because so much of the the independent if if the independent market 
had existed in the 80s the same way that it does now or did even yep. in the mid to late 90s I think Chimino might have been able to rekindle his career to a certain extent but because of the yeah. fact that the studios dominated everything in the 80s and the independent market wasn't quite what was what would be by even the end of the 80s uh, when you consider Steven Soberg starting off, it, yeah. was, it was tougher for a filmmaker like Chimino to get back on his feet. Right, exactly. And, and uh, well, like you said, yeah, I think, I think had the, the uh, availability of the independent market like today been available, yeah, he could have very well uh, done so. I mean, Wells tried to do that. Because, I mean, Other Side of the Wind was done totally independently with, yeah. uh, you know, uh, with gear that uh, that uh, his cinematographer, Gary Graver, had already owned and mm-hmm. all of that. But that was difficult. I mean, that took Wells, I think, Wells started working on that from uh, 1970 until his death in 1985. It was yeah. an ongoing process, whereas today, a film like that could be made in a considerable less amount of time. And yeah. I think... Uh, I think had Chimino uh, uh, dived into that, yeah, you know, he could have very well uh, revamped his career in some way or another. Yeah. And and another thing that helped Wells along the way was the fact that he, his name, even if him as a filmmaker sort of had diminished uh, respect, I don't know, to a certain extent, his name never really lost that respect no. to a certain amount no. because people still they they appreciated especially once the uh, French New Wave came in and they started reevaluating films like Citizen Kane and started saying you know Citizen Kane's one of the great movies of all, all time. It's like he sure. he was going to somebody was probably going to give him money along the way. Absolutely. And even even if it's haltingly like for Other Side of the Wind, which I still haven't seen and I need to see, even if it's something like his Don Quixote, which he never really finished, but if you've ever seen it's a fascinating uh it's a fascinating experiment to see what he was going to do with that. Um Yeah, you, exactly. The fact of the matter is he was able to he he was always Wells was somebody who by virtue of his reputation as a as a giant, he was going to he 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 somebody would have somebody was going to give him a chance, and it's like it's yeah. a shame that you know it's it, it is a shame that Chimino after the Deer Hunter it Deer Hunter feels like a flash in the pan. Because yeah. I mean, his earlier successes, you know, you you can put those on with you know Clint Eastwood and Jeff Bridges were the stars of uh, one of his films, so it's like, oh well, they were yeah. probably more part of the success of that than Chimino was, and so it's like he it feels like he only had like Chimino really only had two films that he's really known for. Yeah, and it's like one was so you could almost. So it's easy for people to rationalize and say, oh, he was kind of a one-hit wonder. 
that came really right. crashing down to earth with his next one. Right. Right, exactly. Well, it's uh, what well, you're right about um, Clint Eastwood and Jeff Bridges uh, being attributed to the success of Thunderbolt to Lightfoot. It's because Eastwood had produced that film, uh, yeah. you see. And uh, and so when, at the time, Chimino came out to Hollywood, he was, you know, a fresh face, of course. And, you know, he he co-wrote uh, Style and Running and then also Magnum Force for Eastwood. Based on that experience, Based on that experience, uh, Jimino had a script for Thunderbolt and Lightfoot and said, and said to Eastwood, I will sell the script as long as you let me direct it. And, and, that's, and so, you know, Eastwood gave him that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that, that's one of the reasons why Jimino became a director is because Clint Eastwood gave him that opportunity. Yeah. But uh, the other thing to note as well, I mean, we mentioned, we mentioned Jimino's perfectionism uh, and his obsessions with details and such. On Thunderbolt and Lightfoot, for what I understand, Chimino, I, I mean, uh, uh, Eastwood as a director and as a producer does like to do a lot of takes, maybe three, four takes or whatever. Yeah. And so, where, and so, so he would constantly, uh, rein in Chimino on the set. Uh, and this is, and this is all, and this is information I heard from the documentary. So, like, for example, uh, uh, if, uh, if they had done another, uh, so if they, so they did like three, four takes, you know, and Chimino wanted to go for another take. Eastwood would be there saying, no, uh, Eastwood would be there saying, no, I think we got it. I think we can move on. And that, that's the way it went. But uh, I think uh, because he was being reined in, that's why that film got done as well as it did and on time and on yeah. budget. Then when you get to films like The Deer Hunter at Heaven's Gate, where it was unbound creative freedom, then it's like, well, then you just let the line out of the gate, you know? Yeah. <laughs> And, and, you know, it's like you, it, it will been, you know, I, I haven't seen, I'm, I'm fairly certain I've seen the deer hunter. I want to say I've seen the deer hunter. Um, yeah. That would have been, that's like the only other one of his films that I will have seen though. So it's like, I'm curious sure. to see more of it. I'm curious to see his other films, see how I feel about them. And so yeah. it's something that I definitely want to uh, dig into. Um, Mm. As far as his film, so I'm, and I will probably try check out the final cut at some point because I, I am curious about this film, and it's like it, I may even I I do kind of want to revisit Heaven's Gate at some point. I'm not sure when I'd necessarily be able to because I mean it was right. hard enough to find one day where it's like I could do three and a half hour yeah. movie. Yeah, I know. Uh, it's 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 another thing to find that time again. Again, uh, with all of the movies that come out and everything that sure. I want to do otherwise, as far as other movies I want to discuss, um, right? <clears throat> but yeah, I haven't. Heaven's Gate is one of those things that I I think it's there's so many different angles to come through with it. I mean, even even though, like I said, even though I do feel like just looking at the financial disaster and the aftermath of it. In terms of what it meant for Unite Ours, what it meant for sort of the creative frame of the seventies, it's impossible. You know, as we've shown, it's it's impossible. As we've talked about, it, it's impossible to not bring that uh, perspective in there and yeah. discuss the film on its own terms. Uh, the film on its own terms, mm-hmm. though, is is worth discussing. Because, I mean, yeah, there's a yeah. lot of things about it that are really, really good, that are really interesting, that are really 
beautiful, but there's also it's so frustrating to watch for a lot yes. of other reasons <laughs> that you know Tamino ultimately is it's 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 a great film you know it it's a great film sort of in the casing of a good film you know yes. it's 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 a film that you can see a great film in there it just yeah. doesn't it, it Tamino just can't really get out of his own way to let it be a great film yeah, I I agree, and that's sort of where the rest of his career took a turn. Because I, the rest of his career, while there are some good films, there is certainly a mixed bag. I mean, during the Dragon is very good. I think uh, the Sicilian, it has its flaws, but it's a gorgeous looking movie. It's very good. Um, and uh, Screen Factory just released it last year on um, on a director's cut Blu-ray. It's it's beautiful. Um, and then he did the remake of Desperate Hours uh, with Mickey Rourke, which for me was uh, to, to me it's his weakest film. But uh, there, it, it, it didn't feel like a Chimino film. It was like it felt like a journey. It felt like a journeyman that was hired mm-hmm. uh, to make it. And there are certainly some signatures of him in there, but ultimately falls flat. And then his last film was um, The Sun Chaser with uh, Woody Harrelson. And uh, that one, too, uh, you could tell that it was a smaller budget and all that. And so films like that, like all those films, they have sweetnesses to them. I, I have a feeling, I, I suspect maybe that maybe his confidence um, sort of, um, uh, maybe his confidence sort of blew uh, after the disaster at Heaven's Gate was. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I can't imagine any filmmaker coming out of that uh, unscathed, you, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I mean, heaven, heaven's gate is it's, it's, I think it's, it's, it's a film that I think film fans and film scholars are always going to look back on. And I mean, that's, that's one of the things that, you know, we, we talked about thematically some of the things that I think make it timeless in terms of the, uh, the way it deals with immigrants, immigrants and the deal the way it deals with power compared to, you know, rich versus poor and all of that stuff. And there was one line sure. in the movie that really resonated with me that it's as true now as it was when the film was written. And it's that um, I think it's uh, Jeff Bridges and Chris Christopherson uh, exchange. And uh, yeah, it was, it's getting dangerous to be poor in this country. And the response is it was always dangerous. And uh, yeah. that's that's a very modern line. That's a very contemporary idea that never that is arguably more true now than it was that was then. I mean, it was getting true, and uh, yeah. it's it's one of those things where it's like if if you've always been curious about Heaven's Gate, it's it's definitely worth your time to watch it. Yeah. And it's definitely worth your time to uh, contemplate and contemplate all of the things that we've talked about about it and to sort of yeah. just, just make up your own mind about it. It's like, don't, it's, it's a film, it feels like it's a big, it feels like it's a big um, task of a movie to get through. And to a certain extent, mm-hmm. it is from a storytelling standpoint, from an editing sure. standpoint. 
but at the same time, um, it's it's something that's worth contemplating and something that yeah I, I can completely see uh, filmmakers such as yourself being inspired by to a certain extent. And yeah. uh, just just because of the fact that there's so much about it that I think is really good and is even great. Yeah. It just, you know, there are other things about it that aren't as great. So, yeah. But I appreciate this discussion we've had tonight on the movie, and I hope yeah. that it does. Likewise. It, I hope it does inspire people to uh, consider the film and uh, to watch the film and to give us give. Give us your your thoughts on the film and uh, see, you know, and to open up a dialogue on the film because I, I it's a film that definitely is worth having a dialogue about, you know. Whether oh, certainly. Discuss yeah. It in terms of its place in film history, in terms of Chimino's career, in terms of the Western genre, I mean, just all sorts of things about it that are uh, worth considering. I agree. Absolutely. Yeah. And uh Chris Esper, thank you very Chris, thank you very much for uh joining me tonight to uh discuss this. Oh, thank you for having me as always. I'd like to thank Chris Esper for joining me tonight. It was really fun to discuss Heaven's Gate as well as a bunch of other topics with him with regards to uh cinema, cinema in the seventies. And uh, just in general, the film and Michael Cimino's career, I'm definitely going to check out more of his uh, work. And uh, thank you very much for joining me at the podcast. Uh, check us out at www.sonic-cinema.com as well as the YouTube Sonic Cinema podcast page. Uh, check me out at patreon.com backslash Cinema for more bonus content including early access reviews and uh, exclusive com- content about the book that I'm uh, writing and hope to release soon, my own music, and more. So that's patreon.com backslash Cinema. For now, uh, this is Brian Scuttle, and I've got a lot more uh, really good stuff coming on the podcast in 2019. Uh, including more discussions with Chris on individual films and uh, a lot of filmmakers coming back and discussing uh, films that mean a lot to them and uh, films that have some interesting uh, ideas for them. So thank you very much for joining me. This is Brian Scuttle. Have a good night. (laughs) 